0: Join me, Sean Hall, for the Scuttlebutt Podcast, a program about understanding military culture from a civilian perspective, every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern on Reeds Across America Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC, including our upcoming schedule of online and in-person events on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Today's guest is Paul Woodage. Paul runs a very famous YouTube channel, WW2, the number two TV, WW2 TV. Uh, He is a historian around the Normandy and D-Day area. Um, He has many videos on his YouTube channel dealing with history and World War II history. We dive into that. We dive into his his own personal history as a reenactor, how he became passionate about history. Um, You could see it in his voice. He's a fantastic storyteller uh we we do a little bit of what if on world war ii uh a great episode Uh, i really hope that you go check out his youtube channel uh fantastic guy um please like share subscribe and ring the bell on youtube so you're the first to know whenever ww2 tv creates new episodes and while you're at it do it for the scuttlebutt as well i'd love to have you thank you so much for enjoying and supporting my podcast uh and please reach out and support paul woodage as well uh enjoy the show Joining me for today's Scuttlebutt is Paul Woodage. Uh, Paul, I'm super excited to dive into your history. You're not a veteran, uh, but you're an author. Uh, You are a former reenactor. You live in Normandy. Is that right?
1: Yep, I do. 22 years here, yep.
0: Yep, 22 years there. Um, You you run a YouTube channel all based around World War II history. There's a lot to get into here. I'd love for you to introduce yourself.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, where do you start? I mean, but essentially, yeah, I was a battlefield guide. Uh, for a long time here in normandy but since i was a kid i was involved in all sorts of veterans associations over in england where obviously i'm from and my family all served in world war ii my great uncle was a platoon commander on sword beach on d-day my grandfather was in the royal artillery searchlights anti-aircraft so i grew up where world war ii was just the most important thing in my life and i didn't i didn't know it was it was just my life and then I've always done things to do with World War II so I was a film extra for a while. I was a reenactor for a long time, knocked that on the head in 2004 when I was 34, whatever it was 35 and 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 now I talk about it on a YouTube channel. I still do guiding yeah I write books, I write articles I yeah, it's everything, any, everything and anything to do with World War II really.
0: That's so exciting. Uh, Yeah, so let's go back into that history a bit, because, you know, we've talked to a lot of a a lot of veterans and, you know, non veterans who say like, my dad never talked about it, my uncle never talked about it, grandfather, they never talked about it. But, uh, you know, this sort of background of history in your family, uh, and important positions that they were in also one of them part of D day, you know, what did they talk about around the dinner table? What stories did they tell you?
1: Well, it's interesting because my grandfather, who lived just down the road from me, he never left the UK. I so say he was in searchlights and anti aircraft, and the one time his unit actually saw a German fighter fly over, he was in the toilet and missed it. So, <laughs> so he, his only bit of action, he actually wasn't there for it. But he, he'd be the first to admit he had a good war. He made lots of friends. He, you know, he, he missed his kids because his one of his daughters, my mum, was born in World War Two. His elder daughter was born just before World War Two, so he missed their he was away for five years essentially um with some leave furlough during that time but it would wait for a long time but he had a good time he traveled around england he was very creative he would make money because he would iron people's uniforms and he he rose up from a gunner to a, a, a gunnery sergeant um and so he loved talking about it he loved talking about the the fact he you know, say so he enjoyed making his uniform look smart. He enjoyed the uh, that that side of it. So I, I was used to veterans who talked about it. So as as you said, the 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 standard thing is they didn't talk about it. But my granddad did talk about it, and he talked about it a lot. Right? Yeah. Then my uncle, who's from my dad's side, my great uncle, my dad's side. He was from uh, West London. He didn't talk about it as much. But I didn't know it was like when I was seven or eight or nine that. He wouldn't talk about it. I treated him like I did my grandfather. So I expected oh. him to tell war stories mm-hmm. and said, so what was it like on D-Day? When we you know. And he talked back to me, um, but probably not other people. And he had he had obviously a wife, my great aunt, and he had two daughters. And they had a live in lodger who was a who was female. So he lived in a house of women. And I think he had learned not that he couldn't talk about it, that, but that he would go, Shh, you know, every time he started mentioned the war. And he carried on post war in the territorial army in in England as well, so he carried on till the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So so both both the veterans I had uh, a big connection with were ones who talked about it, albeit my great uncle only to me. And of course, Mm -hmm. because I went to um, uh, 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 these veterans associations, I was I was uh, was an associate member of the Far Eastern Prisons of War. Because East Anglia, where I'm from, northeast of London, was where a lot of the units that were were basically got straight off the boat and were straight into prisoner war camps in Singapore early in the war. Mm-hmm. Um And I was an associate member of the Nor- Norwich and Norfolk branch of the Normandy Veterans Association. I used to go down to Chelmsford and Essex and meet the Parachute Regiment Association. So obviously, if you go to where veterans meet and talk about it, you're meeting the ones who talk about it. Yeah. Um It's like in Normandy going down a rabbit hole obviously when people say oh the veterans you meet talk about the war I said yes because i'm meeting them in Norm- in normandy they've they've yeah. consciously made the decision with their families to come so mm-hmm. my my swathe of veterans that i've encountered and i've met i don't know 2000 world war ii veterans are not the normal demographic because i'm i'm meeting the ones who are going out confronting it as you know 90 yeah. percent right. of them never spoke to it about it to it to anyone about it for years and years so Mm -hmm. just because i had all these i'm gonna say pleasurable encounters and and sometimes very moving as well with veterans it's not it's not the normal situation i kind of realized that
0: uh and how did i mean obviously you talked about it so that sort of built that passion early in your life how did you you know decide that that was what you wanted to do with your life
1: um i don't know that i ever made any decisions about anything I've ever done I mean now I'm 54 years old and people say you've done this this and this it's like everything had some kind of plan but I've gone through life with a much more random sort of scattergun things will happen to me kind of way yeah Um, I mean even how I moved to France uh, with my, my wife at the time it was like let's go and do something in Normandy and and she was actually French but from a different part of France, my first wife, and uh, yeah. we had no idea. I mean, now the 54 year old me thinks the 32 year old me that just upped sticks and moved <laughs> country without a plan was was, was an idiot. But the 3032 I didn't think that way. So yeah, you know, I did. I did voluntary work in in museums. And I, I, I would carry come on buses with veterans to Normandy as a sort of a teenager acting as a guide without really realizing I wasn't acting as a, a guide. And because I would just been reading about it since I was a kid. And and I was going to say,
0: you'd probably be pretty well read on it to sort of be like a semi guide. If this is what's happening here, this is what's happening there, these the dates, things like that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, again, it, it, it happened completely randomly. What the long story is, is I would come over with these busloads of British veterans from different units mm-hmm. and and they had their predetermined schedules. they would do kind of every year. They'd go after this wood there where Fred lost a leg and that place over there where Jim saw, saw his first tap, that sort of thing. And and the other people who didn't necessarily have a connection with that stop, if it was raining, they might stay on the bus, or they might, or the wives might stay on the bus. And mm-hmm. what would happen is, someone would say, "Oh, they come here every year. I never know why they go after that wood there." And I find myself going, "Well, that, that's um, that's Essex wood. That's on June the 10th, the second battalion Essex when we encountered uh, elements of Panzalea." Mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah. You know, Jim's never told me that. Said so the the wife. The wife would rely on me to fill in the gaps that the veterans weren't bothering to say to other people in the parties. So I was doing this kind of unofficial guiding, explaining to other people why we were stopping at certain places, prompting me to learn more and read more. And then it got to the point where the the veterans themselves were saying, can you explain a little bit more about the context of something like, I don't know, Operation Epsom? Because they would often know exactly what they were doing, but not why they were doing it and what the big plan was. So they would tell you exactly what it was like to walk with a bayonet fixed across a wheat field towards a dug in German position, but they had no idea what Montgomery's over overarching plan for 21st Army Group was. So that's where mm. I would fill in the gaps, you know, and it and it was really difficult because I was way younger than them. Yeah, and yeah. you don't want to speak to them like that. They're they don't know their subject because they were there and I wasn't. Yeah. Um. And and that's kind of how I became a tour guide. So it's not like I I went and signed up for tour guide school. Um, <laughs> I mean, such a thing in France, it's just that I was guiding before I knew I was a guide. And then later on, I consciously decided this is something I wanted to do, you know, full time. And then the YouTubing grew out of that. And yeah. I started doing that during COVID and then found that it was what I really liked. Mm-hmm. And because, oh, you've, you've built up a body of work and you enjoy doing that. So well, no, it just was I had nothing else to do because no one was coming to Normandy because of COVID. And I started doing something. So I I really have never made (laughs) any real plans or decisions. It's all just you know, I've been drifting down a river to from various riverbank to riverbank with things happening to me. I'd be very lucky, really.
0: Well, certainly there's something to be said for finding like your people in a way like, I, I, you know, in my background, I went to, you know, I, I got into theater in high school and I didn't really have a group of friends until that moment of like people that were also passionate about this subject and And you know, finding that group, and then being supported within that as well, I'm sure sort of encourage you to be like yeah, yeah this uh, this feels really good, this feels good that I'm a part of this and 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 I'm sure the veterans appreciated that that knowledge and just like sharing that sort of history and I've noticed a lot of veterans in our network really love it whenever a younger uh a young person comes into the group with this desire to 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 learn uh and hear the stories. they really like attach themselves to that.
1: But it's desire to learn, but also coming in with some kind of level of knowledge already, because that's the the hardest bit is bridging that gap where you say to someone, so who did you serve with, or what were you doing? If you can make a shortcut by me, the interviewer, the, the young person, recognize that person's patch, that badge, and cut straight through that awkwardness of first introductions and say, I guess you were part of the battle of hill 107 or something. Mm -hmm. And they go, Oh, yes, I was. And you've, you've cut through that. Tell us about yourself. Where were you born? How did you enlist? So, yeah, that I would get on in my battlefield guiding days, I would quite often get situations where family members traveling with their veteran would get quite grumpy with me quite quickly. Because the veteran was unloading stuff to me that he had never said to them at all. And I would have mm-hmm. to kind of pull them aside and say, There's two reasons he's unloading stuff to me, not you. One is I'm a complete stranger. So there's an element of it being like on the psychiatrist's couch. And two, I'm asking exactly the right questions because I know exactly what it is he's talking about. So, the, you know, so that's my knowledge there. And, I was, and they would go, Well, yeah, but he never tells us this. And I would kind of say, Well, just enjoy it while it's happening because I've yeah. had a couple of occasions where veterans spoke to me and in turn, their families on the trip and then went back home and never spoke about it again. It Mm -hmm. was simply when they were here in Normandy, this process, this cathartic process. And sometimes they hadn't even really wanted to come their families. said, come on, you should come back. Uncle Stanley, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and then they would just unload there and then, and that was it. That was the process. And then they'd go back home and nothing, nothing. And then other times they would come back and it would, the floodgates had literally opened and they would never stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, so it, it, no, no, I get quite cringy when I see some of these really well intended to sort of the YouTube channels and school projects where they send these, you know, high schoolers out to interview veterans and the, and it's great. And I'm, I'm not, a, I'm a middle-aged grumpy guy and I love the sentiment behind it. But if you just say, so where were you born? Where were you when Pearl Harbor happened? Which do, if you set a, a set of questions like that, you get a set of almost identical answers. Mm-hmm. and and what you need to do is some establish some kind of knowledge about that person so you can as i said earlier cut through the chase and try and hope they will get right to the the important part and right. and then also know when to know when to back off when you're when you're prodding an area that is is uncomfortable for someone yeah. to, to to talk about you know that the day they did lose their friend or the day their unit did suffer terrible casualties you have to kind of skirt around that subject and only go there if they want to go there, but also yeah. at the same time recognize the fact that you may have to nudge them a little bit because it's part part of the process
0: it's It's a really fine line and and honestly a skill and a talent uh I didn't have it years ago when I started with v b c and you know still learning it as well, but you certainly get a feel in the conversation with a veteran talking about particular parts of their service where you just you know when to just nudge a touch, you yeah. know when to back out and just say, "Let the story flow." Um, th- those are words to live by, especially in our field of just interviewing veterans, talking with them, figuring out their story, finding out what happened. Um, yeah. What got you into reenacting?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know, really. I mean, again, it was just I I I was trying to get involved in every thing that was local to me that had anything to do with World War II. So I grew up near, near all the Eighth Air Force bases. So I would go to open days at the control towers and and then suddenly I was involved in a kind of an amateur museum thing that had a kind of a mobile display of stuff. And I started going along there and I had a little collection of military. Then it was like, why don't we, you're young, why don't you put the uniform on and then you can show to people what the uniform was like they're wearing. And then again, without realizing it, suddenly I was a reenactor, um, living historian and people have different c- claimers over which term they prefer. And I did that for a while. And I got to go to Normandy for some anniversaries and market garden Arnhem for some events there and did some really cool things. And then, and then knocked it on the head when i thought i was getting too old and too too fat to do it justice and and stop that so mm-hmm. yeah i've had a lot of fingers and a lot of pies over the years and well um, take
0: me if you know what i take me back to that first time you sort of did the reenactment because these aren't uh we have a huge one here in western pennsylvania um up in Conneaut. it's the biggest d day reenactment yeah. in the country yeah. um we just had it a couple months ago uh and, and this isn't you know half baked the reenactors are are very serious about portraying this in a very truthful manner um what did it mean to you to to put that that uniform on and and go through this sort of scenario that you've heard about but you're sort of acting in as well
1: well i had a slightly unusual routine in that most of what i did was already working with a particular veterans veterans unit so i was affiliated with the royal norfolk regiment veterans so they they wanted to see younger people wearing their uniforms that's what mm. they they requested that they request it's long story short they requested that collectors would bring along uniforms to their annual meetings and then it was like well we can't we're too old to wear the uniforms now can't you young guys wear the uniforms so we, we were actually requested in some ways by the veterans to do to do it so we weren't we weren't opening up a catalog of which unit shall I do and choosing one. It was, we were asked to do stuff involved with veterans. And then later on, I did a bit of stuff out of choice. So I didn't necessarily come to it through the conventional way. And that, and that's where the reenactment world today, where your chances of meeting a a person from the unit that you're, you're recreating are are very thin on the ground. World War II reenactment, of course first of all war reenactment it's impossible to meet anybody who wore the uniform so you know i was doing it back in the um in the in the 80s um late 80s early 90s when you know these guys were were around they're the only they the, they're the age of my dad is now and um mm-hmm. um so i was doing i i never did much of the battle reenactment stuff i never did very much that running around with blank firing weapons it was more the kind of working with veterans i mean i was at a couple of events where the the veterans would have you know parade their colours uh, yes. at at events in the UK and we would be the honor guard for that so we're doing yeah. kind of serious stuff which which happens your side of the of the pond as well and uh um and you know reenactment is something that I I've done shows on on my channel about it it's something that like anything else when it's done really well it's fantastic and when it's yep. done badly it's awful um but that applies to books about history and war films and podcasts. There's there's good and there's bad across. I would never want reenactment to go away because some of it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's bad, I would say, but <laughs> a lot was, of it's very good as well.
0: What was your best experience during the time that you did in reenactments?
1: Uh, the 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 final event ever did. So it was two thousand and four. So we're the anniversary of of Market Guard in Arnhem, and I was part of uh, first airborne reconnaissance squadron. So we had nine jeeps with vickers k guns on all in denison smocks all with airborne helmets all correct you know all all the stuff correct in our pockets the whole lot and we you know we we did the race to the bridge from the drop zones through where airborne recce went and ended up you know forming up by arnhem bridge and um and it was like okay that's 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 quite a high (laughs) yeah let's let's stop at that i was already living in france at that point so my my the groups that i was part of were, were were in the uk so it was like getting over to the events was hard and I just said, you know, you know, well, just stop it. Stop it. Now you've you've had a good crack at it and, um, and, um, end on a high. And, uh, it's funny cause I, I don't always advertise that I was a reenactor these days because mm-hmm. it, it's very much a mixed response from people. Some people are, Oh, brilliant. Others are, you know, you, cause you can't necessarily be taken seriously as a historian. If you used to dress up as a soldier, I know, I know people mm. who work in the field of interpretive living history where, they are they write books about World War Two, but they also have impressions, as you would say, your side of the pond where they go out as And it means that certain academic doors are are bolted to them. Interesting. Um, unofficially because they're seen as a as as in the kind of cosplay. Yeah. Environment. So right. it it's I, I'm not going to I'm not ashamed of being a reenactor, but it's something I don't necessarily put at the forefront, depending on the right. environment I'm in, because I, I'm trying to do so many things I'm trying to be a you know youtuber i write books and 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 ultimately I've got no qualifications for what I did at all I left school at sixteen i have i've not served i've not served my country uh, i've i've not i uh, i I've not got a degree in history i've just been talking about it for thirty well no it's for nearly forty years now so i i've 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 become wherever i am in the status regarded as someone who knows about this stuff but it's based on doing it not necessarily earning the the right credentials
0: well this doesn't always i'll I'll speak to not needing the right credentials at times we have a a host for our greatest generation live program who's read probably more world war ii books than anybody i know if not ever (laughs) you know he knows a lot and he reads every book about world war ii and he uh his ability to come on the show host the program bring on veterans speak to their experience and the greater uh you know the fifty thousand foot view of what was going on on you know in the minds of macarthur and, you know mm. it you know i'll sit and listen to him all day because he's well read on the subject you know that doesn't matter to me if he doesn't have the the you know the yale degree i, I want to hear him talk you know he's it's just the same if you have a passion for it and you're knowledgeable about it the people will flock to that as well i mean evidence, yeah, I
1: th- yeah i think the caveat is if if, if you can share it with other people. I mean, it's all very well, some people I know who've read an extraordinary amount, but mm-hmm. don't want to share their information with others, or they, right. they that that's, in that case, you're not really a historian, because the historian bit comes out of passing it on to someone else. And uh, mm-hmm. in, in what I do as a YouTuber, there are people who write brilliantly, but aren't necessarily good person to person. There are others mm-hmm. who are who perhaps they're not the greatest at writing, but a fantastic face to face. And 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 some people are both. Some people can write well and convey the history. And it's that that fine line of being able to learn about something and then pass that information on to others who ha- are maybe at a different level of understanding to you and making it easy to understand. And mm-hmm. I had lunch today uh, with some friends over on for, uh, with the World War Two Museum out of New Orleans. So Michael Nyberg, John McManus, mm-hmm. uh, Craig Simons is over, um, you know, and Michael Nyberg has written about you know, World War I, World War II, He has an ability to take incredibly complicated things like the Treaty of Versailles and boil it down to just an understandable, um, but yet not losing the nuance of the complication of the history. Yeah, and that's an absolute skill to be able to communicate that. Now he has got all the qualifications and teaches at some very prestigious um, establishments over, over over in the USA. But but he didn't. He wouldn't necessarily have to have that qualification providing the ability to share it is is something he has and yeah uh, and and i ha, having been out there if you can, if you can communicate standing in a in a in a in a rainstorm on omaha beach to people standing there listening to you at a rainstorm on omaha beach what omaha beach was all about and they're still listening to you despite the fact the rain is in, lashing into their face you can kind of do your job and that's that's where i That's where I earned my spurs is, you know, at the (laughs) coalface of standing on battlefields, right? It's for every day of fantastic weather. There's the other day when you're thinking, you know, this is a bad day. And I would say to clients sometimes, look, you don't, you're not doing this to please me. I've seen all these sites before. You've happened to arrive here today when the weather is really crap, you know, Do you want to go out and see these places because you know I can see them they're kind of they they brace themselves walking out to point Du or utah bar, utah beach with the white wind lashing in and, and. And they'll say you know, do you want me to tell you what happened here and they go yes, yes, no, we do you know and you think that that's it you that's it's 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 the history it's maybe my ability to convey it and the fact that they feel this connection with the sites and that's that's where you earn your ability to communicate it's it's not not on a podcast in a nice well-lit comfortable chair in a studio to be fair
0: <laughs> I, I i think i would enjoy being out on that rain hearing those stories uh currently i'll take the chair but
1: <laughs> being yeah, going mean, on
0: the tour going on that yeah, tour I mean, it like sounds when, incredible when
1: people say to me um you know oh i'm thinking of going to the ardennes um, yeah and oh I, yeah i go well go, if you're gonna go you've got to go in december or january yeah. I mean, sure. Some people experience their, their vacation, what they were experiencing. Yeah, going in July is fine, and you can the museum is a nice and open. You can sit outside and have a beer. But if you really want to get to grips with what the Ardennes was like, go there in the winter. Go there. I remember, I literally remember being there with some mates where they all tour guides to Normandy. Yeah, and we're there, and we we are there in December, and it was really, really cold. And we're parked up, and there's a bunker. Well, the mm-hmm. bunkers that the, the Belgians actually built and the Americans are using around the, the string of defenses around Baston. And we're seeing this across this field that's got snow in it and frost and the wind is hanging across. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going, well, we, we should get out and go and look at the bunker then. Well, the couple, we're sitting there, the engine's running. We should, we should go now. Well, let's go and have a look at the bunker. And then after like one of us said, well, we all know what a bunker looks like. <laughs> from <Normandy. laughs> And we decided to go off and have a nice warm meal in a pub, but it was a, yeah, it was a conscious decision. And you, you, you know, it's, going to see battlefields is can be quite a quite an endurance test. Yeah. Uh, One
0: more question, just sort of during the reenactment phase of your life. Uh, Did it give you more empathy for that experience, just like we're talking with, like visiting these areas during the actual weather that they the troops were experiencing, but putting on the uniform and did, did it kind of make you feel a little more like, OK, this is this is what it was like.
1: Yes, but with the massive great caveat. Yeah. That wearing a uniform does not in any way connect whatsoever to the experiences of actually fighting in the stuff in a war you know i mean mm-hmm. i'm great privileged enough to know some of the guys who who the actors in band of brothers so jimmy maddio ross mccall you know uh, uh and Lee and Well, they're mates of mine i go to the pub with them quite often yeah. and when everyone talk about talks to them about the boot camp they did for that they always say, the whoa," you know we did 10 days of boot camp and it was really tough. But when, please do not think we are in any way equating boot camp for a TV show mm-hmm. for actual service in the war. And I'm exactly the same. Yes, at a tiny level, I've got that under I did British reenactment mostly because you, you had a rolled up ground sheet on the, on the back of your pack. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not big enough to put under you and over you. So if you're in a foxhole, you have to decide if it's raining. Do I try and put it under me? And stop water coming up from below, or do I put it over me? Because it says, yeah. you, you can't do both. Now that tiny little bit of understanding of how it was for those guys, tiny, tiny, tiny slither. But I don't like the idea of reenactors saying that putting a uniform on and going to you know standing at a public environment and is in any way giving them <laughs> a sense of it. It's a tiny, tiny snapshot. Absolutely so so yes it it did give me some empathy but underlined in that you know mm-hmm. i'm not ever saying that it was anything like what it was actually because you the, the, the thing you, you all you can recreate in living history is a sense of the itchiness the uncomfortableness the yeah. the physical fatigue mm-hmm. the being damp i mean i did i did a commemorative walk in at dunkirk so we walked 60 miles from inland to dunkirk to be rescued by the little this is for the 60th anniversary again and you know i've still got a scar on my heel for the blister of walking in hobnail ammo boots for 60 miles every three days i've still got the blister there they're doing you know, medic siphoning off pus from my heel and it was not very nice right? oh yeah um but i'm never gonna compare that experience to being on that beach and having stuka dive bombers coming in and killing my friends and watching that and the terror of the of knowing that rommel's bloody Panzer Corps are hurtling down the road behind you. So it's everything is underlined with a t- that caveat of it gives you a little bit of a sense of the physical physical um, mm-hmm. um under, uh, uh, suffering. And yet even that isn't really the case because that generation wore big solid leather boots anyway. They carried so it's only because we're 21st century people that mm-hmm. we think of Walking a long way, as oh god, that, that's what those guys that that actually for that generation was what they did. You must have spoken to numerous World War Two veterans who had to walk five miles to school. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so me as a in the in the late in the late eighties, early nineties, having to walk a little bit in in tough boots, and then pretending that that's me understanding the veterans' experience when that generation were doing that from the age that's, of five, yeah. anyway. So. You know, we're, we were recreating something that they didn't even think about. They, they, they. I don't think many veterans really. I mean, it's like a question. I'm going down a rabbit hole. I do this a lot.
0: That's No, People it's perfect. Me, it's what a great What was the point. weather like
1: on D-Day? What, 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 what do the veterans remember about the weather? And I go, do you think that's in any way on their list of things they were worried about that day? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. worry about the weather when you're not in combat, when you're on leave, when you're when you're in the barrack blocks and you've got to do some work for the sergeant major. That's when the weather matters. Mm-hmm. But when there's someone trying to shoot you, whether More, you're a little multiple, bit old, yeah, or a little bit cold, on. really, really isn't on on big on the list. Yeah. Um. And so veterans, you go. What was the weather like? Oh, I, I, I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> you go. Yeah. I get yeah. that. I, when I, they're I sitting on on remember.
0: like on your background, if they're sitting on that boat, and they're about to you know land, and you know they know that those pillboxes are up there, and there's yeah. already live fire happening. Yeah. None of that. None of that rain is gonna be. Seared into your memory,
1: yeah, and and neither is necessary the fact their feet are wet. To when it it is it is having a a physical effect on them. I mean that's one of the stories on Omaha Beach is the fact they have to clear four or five hundred yards, and they've been puking their guts up for three or four hours in some of the landing craft, and and they've been standing up to their knees in freezing cold water. We can, as historians, can now know. That they were starting to show signs of hypothermia, which hadn't even wasn't even really a thing we understood back in the 1940s, and probably did impair their physical ability to move across that beach and make judgment calls they had to make there. But they definitely weren't thinking that way. They 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 were, you when you're thinking slowly, you don't know you're thinking slowly. As as we know mm-hmm. with hypothermia, people who are who are suffering don't know they're suffering from hypothermia. It's like um, sunstroke, things like that. You don't often know that you're suffering from it. So so these we can now say well maybe they weren't moving that fast that day because they had been puking their guts out for three hours uh and they've been given steak and eggs for breakfast that morning and all that is affecting mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. but that was the last thing they were th- maybe they would look back on it and think oh that, that may explain why I was a bit slower moving that day because my boots are full of water right but anyway um why why Normandy why uh, there's been I mean
0: how many battles not even just world war ii but across history that are you know stand out as world changing but specifically normandy and d-day what made you zero in on that
1: because if i mean this is this is going to make me sound a, a terrible person because if you're going to do if you're going to do world war ii for a living you have to make money doing it um you, you, i i can i do a certain amount of things for free um but you've got to pay the bills and Normandy right. is where people go that i mean the, mm-hmm. the simple reality is two million people a year uh, come to Normandy to see the battlefields. Mm. It's a few thousand go to the Ardennes. It's a few thousand go to Monte Cassino or Anzio, um, and and that's places that are easy to get. Then you get the the, the, the Philippines or 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 um, Saipan or Peleliu or I- I- Tarawa, Iwo Jima, or or Stalingrad. Or mm-hmm. Normandy is not only massive in people's consciousness; it's also really easy to get there. There's a massive, great infrastructure in place for people to see. And you know, I'm one of a 150 tour guides in Normandy. There's about six in the Ardennes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Ardennes is technically a larger uh, land battle. Yeah. Um, so Normandy is, if you want to make a career out of World War II, Normandy is kind of the place, the only place that it would sustain that amount of um, work.
0: Right. What amazes you about the history of Normandy and D-Day?
1: Um. In, in fact, it, what amazes me now as I've got older is that people's knowledge often drops off a cliff after D-Day after after it's that for some people it is, it is World War Two. Um, like the Civil War is Gettysburg. Um, the mm-hmm. First World War is the Somme, you know, and so it, it it amazes me that 2 million people come here. And that maybe 90% of them don't really Comprehend the complexity of what happens after Normandy, what had been happening before Normandy, how Normandy connects with the fact that at the very same time the Soviets are launching Operation Bagration to, from the east towards the west, and and it's it's Normandy, and, and Normandy is different to D-Day. Hmm. That's that's the, that. When I when I say people come to Normandy, they come to Normandy for D-Day. They don't come for the Battle of Normandy. They come to hear D-Day. They come to hear about the successes on June the sixth. And i think it's because it's a nice nice is not the right word it's a it's an easy to comprehend story that you can take away in a simple package Mm. and at the beginning of the day the germans held the beaches and at the end of the day the allies held the beaches and you can see that chapter turn Mm. now the fact is there's 76 more days of fighting in normandy where the germans had a massive great say in that and there were operations where the germans were, were, were doing better than the allies there's there's command problems on the allied side there's weather situations, there's there's all sorts of things going on. Then that's a much muddier, more complicated thing to explain, especially to people who have a limited amount of time to understand that. Yeah, and again, Gettysburg would be a good example for the Civil War is that you can go to Gettysburg and tour around for an even after an afternoon. Mm-hmm. A couple of days will be better. And at the end of that afternoon or two days, you can more or less understand how that battle began, panned out and concluded. Yeah. Doesn't explain how the, the the civil war in in that in in the East Coast began, but it, you can you can walk away with that battle kind of ticked off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so D Day is something people can come and they can um, they can understand. I did a I did a, a talk uh, in England at the We Have Ways Fest, which is Al Al Murray and James Holland, massive great podcast in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, my, my, my talk was on what I call obligation tourism, uh, which is, is people who, who, and they're not bad people, they're people who want to come to Normandy, they mm-hmm. want to pay their respects, but it's not a life commitment, it's a day or two commitment, and then as soon as they've done Normandy, they're off somewhere else, and that's fine, yeah. they're off on an adventure. I'm going. I'm. I'm going to Budapest tomorrow, and Budapest, Brno, Bratislava, and Prague for nine days. And I've read up about it, and I'll do some stuff. And I'm there, but I'm not committing to a massive, great, long-term need to understand the full complexity of the Battle of Budapest. I'll be there for a day and a half, and that's probably going to be about the amount of time that I will need to understand that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and so, D-Day and D-Day and Normandy is has become has become bigger than just D-Day and Normandy. It's, it's tied up with the the whole concept in the USA of the greatest generation. It ties in mm-hmm. with semi prior Ryan and Tom Brokaw and uh, and and a sense of who you as Americans were mm-hmm. and for the Brits as well. I mean, we've just had the, the, the Michael Caine film has just come out. The greatest, Esca- a great escaper about a vet, the veteran coming back for the 70th. And it's it's doing big business because D-Day is is a You can say d down on the street and a lot of people will know what you mean by it Mm -hmm. um they wouldn't necessarily know about anzio or salerno right um so yeah i'm
0: going to drill down on this uh and sort of uh ask that question again but i i want to uh, drill down on uh what did you find most amazing about the actual like as you've mentioned that normandy was this much bigger deal what was happening before what was happening after you know but to you like as you look at that history sort of living off of that history now uh what is the, what is maybe the single most interesting thing that you found about understanding that history what, what the guys were going through was it the the size of the force that was coming in was it uh that the whole world shifted maybe at that point
1: it's all of that um and mm-hmm. and just the complexity of how that whole operation was put together without computers with 16 mm. if different nations officially taking part on D-Day, plus a whole lot more represented by pilots and, and Navy personnel, um, speaking different languages, with, with different aims at the end of it. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about Britain and America, for example, is that D-Day, Operation Overlord, is a brilliant example of just by that point of the war, how well the US, Britain and Canada were getting on. Okay, there's the odd little personal beefs between Monty and Patton at times. And, and I you know, there, there's there's personality clashes which you would expect given the amount of stress these guys are under to yeah. to take an a amphibious landing into occupied france and and defeat hitler but the the relationship between the us and and, the, and britain had not been a completely smooth one i mean operation torch just a year and a half earlier nearly nearly broke the us and british cooperation. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, Churchill and Roosevelt got on really well personally, which somehow managed to kind of filter down. But there's, you know, basically, it it, it fell down to the fact the British have an as a long term vision for their empire and how the Mediterranean will pan out long term, whereas you Americans are simply thinking short term in defeating the axis there. And that but by D day, put all that behind us you know we're we're, we're in a world today where countries are failing to get on with each other uh, over decades Mm -hmm. and 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 the fact that overlord operation overlord was so complex as a military operation but i think far more interesting was much more complex as this geopolitical um diplomatic effort in that you know the the soviets were one of our allies indeed okay they're not actually physically part of the invasion force so in norway and and denmark and luxembourg and south africa and Rhodesia, and you're talking about countries that have got incredibly different types of government mm-hmm. and and way and and cultures and I, and yet we all i'm saying we as if i was in any way part of it they all had this common goal of the defeat of hitler and the, the bringing back of liberation and i think that is what still blows my mind about operation overlord is getting that number of people from that number of countries to simply agree on, on this ultimate goal of defeating Hitler. Okay. It was a very black and white war in that clearly they were the bad guys and we, the allies were clearly the good guys, mm-hmm. but yeah, you, and you can break it down to say that organizing all the, the technology of the tanks and the, and the, the bomb, the flight paths and the, all that is incredibly clever, but just, everybody's singing to the same hymn sheet yeah your country is divided right down the middle my country's divided. right now you know we can't agree on anything now yeah. as, as, as within our own countries yeah and yet all of these countries came together and went yeah okay single goal here let's all work towards that goal across the divide across the politics across the political spectrums across the cultures everything and just like yep yeah, let's just defeat hitler and sort everything out everything else after that that's right if only if only uh, uh, the, the humankind could could do that kind of thing today. Mm-hmm. That that's what that's ultimately what amazes me about Operation Overlord.
0: Was there a point uh, in sort your knowledge of of Normandy D Day this whole this whole time frame? Was there any point during that that the Allies could have lost D Day? Could have not gained
1: the beaches could have that's not a really bigger. good question your, your best one so far um i'm quite adamant in the fact that d-day itself was pretty much guaranteed to work mm-hmm. because we have multiplied our chances we we have the force multipliers we've we've incorporated to make sure d-day works we we know we're there's there's 288 millimeter guns on Omaha Beach German one at each end of the beach we've got 124 naval guns of six inch and above bombarding the beach but, You know, so the firepower the allies can unleash on those bombard uh, those zones is just something the Germans can't even can't even imagine yeah yes yes the first wave are always going to get it tough because that's that ultimately some poor son of a bitch has to jump out of that first landing craft whether he's British and go across clear that sand but behind him is this massive great force so 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 with all the intelligence gathering that we've done with the, the millions of aerial photos that have been taken the, the you know we have eleven thousand five hundred aircraft in the skies on d-day the germans have less than 50 i mean it's as clear close to air supremacy as you can possibly get mm-hmm. you know seven thousand ships you know um, so so, D, so, more things would have to go wrong for the Germans. Uh, so right for the Germans and wrong for the allies than is possible mathematically and prob- in terms of probability for D-Day to fail. But but. The race is on as who can bring their their reinforcements up the quicker. That's the that's the big gamble for me. The most exciting part of the battle of Normandy is June 11th, 12th, 13th, mm. because On D-Day, the Allies are landing nine divisions. There's about nine German divisions waiting for them. So one-on-one is not ideal. You'd want to have normally in a modern military environment, three to one minimum numerical superiority. So in personnel, we're about even, but we have this this ace of the massive great air power and the ace of this massive great naval bombardment behind us and this intelligence knowledge we have of knowing well, yes, those pillboxes that you mentioned that are behind me in that photo in, in behind the smoke, Yes, they're dangerous, but we know exactly where they are mm-hmm. and we know exactly how to knock them out. Now, again, some poor sod has to run across that beach and, and put, place the, the satchel charge in the opening there or hope the naval shell goes in the, and all that. But there's no mystery about how to how to achieve that. We know exactly how to achieve it. But as you move inland in Normandy, we don't know where the Germans are going to be, going to be holding. And ultimately, they didn't they didn't put the line where we thought they were going to put the line. Mm-hmm. They thought that this we thought their secondary line was going to be kind of like 30 miles inland, And they pushed their units up much closer to the beach than we ever expected them to do, which caused us problems because we couldn't enlarge our beachhead fast enough because the Germans are racing up. But, but the, the, the race is on to bring up their divisions because the Germans have about 14 divisions they can get here within a week. Right. Mm-hmm. We have way more divisions than that in the UK that we can eventually deploy. I mean, eventually uh, one and a half million Allied soldiers come through Normandy. Mm-hmm. But it takes, you know, two two days to bring an armored division across if the weather's okay. And another two or three days to bring across enough ammunition and fuel for that armored division to actually go on the offensive. Right. So the race is on is you know, to use it as a playground fight. Who can go and get, get their dad to the first? You know, the two kids <laughs> scrapping. Who's going to bring up the biggest dad and who's going to get their dad into the playground first? And now the Germans have the ability to not, well, they don't have to cross a channel to get here. Now they've got to deal with the Allied air power hitting all their German their troop move, move, movements coming up, mm-hmm. but if they can get and of these fourteen or so divisions, about eight are 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 Panzer divisions. If they can get these eight pan, uh, Panzer divisions to Normandy before we've got our uh, tank divisions and our support engineers ashore, if the weather turns worse, and then you've got a real battle on your hands. And and again, the Germans probably can't lose, but what they can do is is pissed the allies on off, off off so much that they they maybe have to change, think of something else or get the public opinion behind some kind of um, deal in that every every parent, American, British, or Australian, everybody else by my 1944 has lost a son or they've lost their brother, they've, they've got kids out overseas, or their neighbour has or their, their cousin has, there's there's a war fatigue. Yeah, Just as the Allies are starting to win the war, which by 42, 43, the tide is turning, the Allies are are looking like they're going to win the war. But public opinion is really wanting this to come to an end because every family's had to make a sacrifice. Absolutely. And if in Normandy, there's enough Allied casualties and, and, and Eisenhower and, and the other commanders are still relentlessly trying to push on there, at what point does Eisenhower... Montgomery Churchill Roosevelt even become considered especially if we find out the Germans are, have got a deal on the table mm-hmm. um, we know now that the that Roosevelt and Churchill have have decided that it can only be an unconditional surrender because of because of the Holocaust because everything else because of the the only deal is they completely and utterly capitulate and and, and ask what happened but if 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 the, if the Germans unleash these divisions before we can get ours there in Normandy. And if the losses in Normandy mount, and then the losses in Normandy were never, never got close to what the worst fears were. Mm -hmm. The Normandy campaign finishes under schedule and under uh, what there'd been anticipations of having to pay in the butcher's bill, uh, quite considerably under that. But if, if it had gone over those projections, if the public and new and correspondents had got a sense of, of how many guys have been killed, I mean, the life expectancy of a platoon commander in the Somme in 1916 was 28 days, and normally it was seven days. Oh wow! So it, 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 there could have been a situation where the uh, people start saying, "Why are our guys still there? What what, mm-hmm. what This is what what? How, what's everybody's price they're prepared to pay?"
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and that that's where the Battle of Normandy could have gone a bit a bit sticky few weeks in, uh, l- luckily, the Allies were able to push the Germans back. And despite the, what I call the attritional period, all through late June and early July, the Allies are learning how to win the war. They're learning how to battle through the hedgerows. They're learning how to do this, and y- you get the breakouts by July. And in the end, it all comes good. But yeah, there there was a m- D-Day wasn't where it was going to go, where it could have gone wrong. But uh, maybe a week in, there were a lot I could go on. Uh, these these pivotal battles. The Manil Patri, June 11th, Canadians pushing inland against the 12th SS, the, the link up, the 101st Airborne taking Carant on, on 12th mm-hmm. of June, and then the counter at Bloody Gulch June the 13th, the British over in the Airborne sector at Breville, um, the, the, all these battles ended up mostly going the Allied way, but if, a few, if you get the domino effect, if a few of them go the German way, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and a few more German units play the game better, Mm-hmm. and normandy becomes an absolute bloodbath and you could be looking at something up like the slog up italy which right. was which was incredibly but weirdly the world wasn't watching italy
0: <laughs> well that's yeah that's sort of a, another follow-up question i have because i'll get to that in a second but the other one is i've always been interested in this basically off of like big battles that have always happened how weren't why weren't the germans more prepared for normandy I mean, you you get that big of a force. It does. It, it takes how long to put eleven, you know, that many ship or that many planes in the air? That many ships pointed at that direction? Was it there? intel was wrong on when the actual attack would happen because um, you figure the Germans would have been like, build up the force as big as you want because we know it's coming.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, it's important to remember just how, on how many plates the Germans are still trying to keep spinning by mm-hmm. the summer of '44. You know, that they that their efforts in Yugoslavia are being pushed back by massive great partisan um, resistance there in Yugoslavia. The, the Soviets are pushing them out of out of, um, of so and they're now p- pushing towards the Third Reich itself. Italy, you know, Salerno happened in September 43 so that the Allies are pushed now up Italy. They've already lost North Africa and Tunisia a, a year earlier. They're losing the Battle of the Atlantic, Atlantic uh, or have already arguably lost the Battle of Atlantic. Um, they're they're being pinned back on every single front um mm. and ultimately the deception plan where the allies while operation overlord is being planned they're planning operation fortitude which is the, which is the protection of the secrecy of overlord mm. and Patton, in a masterstroke by Eisenhower is both punished and rewarded for the same thing in the, in Sicily, he'd got himself embroiled in those slapping of soldiers with PTSD, which is an unforgivable in 2023 situation. Mm-hmm. But it afforded Eisenhower the opportunity to admonish Patton by saying, "Okay, that's it, Georgie, you're out of Sicily, you're losing your command. But here's here's the here's the reward: you're going to get command of First U.S. Army Group." And Patton goes, "Well, that's fantastic. When do I take command?" Well, "Tomorrow." Mm-hmm. "Where are they?" "Well, it doesn't exist. First U.S. Army Group doesn't exist. It's a it's a fake, fictitious army in the east of England." that the mm-hmm. Allies are trying to convince the Germans are going to be coming across the narrow part of the Channel to Calais. And it's mm-hmm. an even bigger force. And this is, this is actors in studios recording cylinders of people saying, geez, the 27th division needs 16,000 pairs of socks by Tuesday. The Germans are theoretically listening to these radio transmissions and they're flying over and taking photos of the inflatable landing craft and the, and the canvas and, mm-hmm. and rubber inflatable Sherman tanks, blah, 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 blah. So that even when on June the 6th, the Allies do achieve total tactical surprise by by coming ashore in a part of France where even although Rommel suspected it was going to be Normandy, that the, basically the Germans were still splitting their defenses between the Pas de Calais and Normandy and mm-hmm. and even you know several days after June the 6th, the Germans are still they can't dismiss the idea that this might be a diversion for a bigger attack coming later. Now, oh, wow. I just said earlier, Operation mm-hmm. Overlord was a, a magnificently complicated <laughs> getting 11 and aircraft and 7000 ships in the in, 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 in the in the in the water there was stretching what the Allies could do to to near breaking point the year we couldn't have done it a year ago. we didn't have enough landing craft hmm. but yet the Allies have managed to convince the Germans there's an even bigger force that hasn't been deployed yet yeah. I mean it's incredible yeah how the Germans fell, fell for that. And even if they only fell for it partially, because we now maybe be examining that some of the cleverer Germans are going, hang on, this can't. That has to be the big landing. There's no way they can have more people coming somewhere else. But they couldn't yeah. they couldn't shove everybody's normally just in case. It, it, what what if it was a diversion? So um, if I could go, go back it, in time, so, if I could yeah. go
0: back in time, I, I would just. You can't imagine that many ships and that much aircraft. Absolutely. You can't imagine it. You you look out. You could show you. You know, say to the tourists. You know, imagine these eleven thousand ships. Look up. See seven thousand planes coming. It
1: it doesn't. I, that... I absolutely cannot do that. I every time yeah. I I try and say there's four hundred bombers approaching uh, uh, um, Omaha Beach. My brain can't take it. And You get to and then, and we're we're the Allies are only going to get more. I mean Operation Cobra. So you know July twenty fourth, twenty fifth, twenty sixth, when that is launched by Bradley, and the Allies with it's like 800 fighter bombers and 1200 four engine bombers bomb a three mile by one and a half mile rectangle to make sure that there are no Germans in it. And then they crash eight divisions in the Vanguard through this rectangle to crash on through Normandy. And I'm standing there trying to visualize 1200 aircraft in a three mile. I mean, they weren't coming over exactly the same minute. That would be impossible. Right. But my, my, I go to an air show. I get excited if I see four Spitfires, you know, Right. 3B17s is enough to kind of, you know, your jaw drops you go, "Oh my god, there's 400 of them over." And yep. that's nothing. We yep. know we're getting thousand bomber raids like almost daily by 44 45.
0: Yeah. It, it, the th- sound th- of that, just the sound of it coming. I had I walked the dog the other day as a side note and two Chinooks came coming came over from uh, our 911th and you could hear them coming. I was walking, all you hear is boom, 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 boom And you're like, yeah. what? That's not a medical helicopter. And you look up and you see two of them flying over. And, you know, that's nothing audibly in comparison to what that that noise must have been.
1: It's no wonder at- World War II veterans were all a bit hard of hearing when I spoke to them. I mean, it, it <laughs> right? was really, really noisy. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's, uh, and-
1: you know, to, to answer your question about the the, the, the what the Germans hadn't re- completely realized, even the Germans that have been beaten out of Tunisia and North Africa is... The Allies have big war. Now, this isn't my friend. This is one of my best mates, James Holland, the prolific author and historian. The Germans don't have big war. The Germans have really, really technologically advanced Panther tanks and tigers and these incredible weaponry. But behind it is this truck, horse drawn. How, how, a question for you, Sean, how many horses do you think a German infantry division had in 1944 in Normandy? How many horses? Ten? it's about 4000. Oh my God, <laughs> that, 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 I mean, people, people say, no, he's got that wrong. It must be 40. No, it's it's, a, it's between two and a half and 5000 is how how many horses the Germans have per division, because behind this facade of Tiger tanks and Panthers are, are some trucks. I mean, the Germans invaded Russia in 1942, uh, 41 with them. Um, seventy different types of truck manufacturer or something like that. With no, there's no way they're gonna keep them all on the road. And so by normally they're using horses. You know, there's there's like mm-hmm. two hundred men in any division just shoeing horses and providing the the, the their feed.
0: See, I, did, so I when, definitely didn't know that. Mainly because you know I say it's such a low number because all I remember is reading about how um the horse the cavalries were just butchered in world war ii because of the machine gun and i was like no one really was probably using horses by world war ii after
1: well, using realized... millions of them it's, wow. uh, and, and 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 yeah because and even the german generals who survived the war they're kind of writing the history and the you know talking about how great their tanks were and great their aircraft were because they don't want to admit that they their army was horse drawn um mm. It's, it's it, you know, and so this, but the, but the big war allies, have, the allies have, it takes a long time to deploy. That's what's fascinating is that, you know, the allies are planning to build within a, a week of the invasion, like 40 air landing grounds, 40, I mean, within a week. I mean, otherwise, like near where you are, but if they want to put a bypass or beltway around a city, it takes three years for the meetings to take place, another two years to, to, to please all the environmental people, then the work will take another two years. And then mm-hmm. they wanted to build 40 aircraft, airfields within a, within a week, which yeah. they nearly did. I think they got 28 done within a week, and the next it took them another week or something. I mean, it's the, the can do ability of just that generation. Of, of, good grief. Yeah. My goodness.
0: Uh, you mentioned sort of the push up through Italy. I always also wondered why D Day, Normandy, Omaha, why those took precedent over that that initial invasion. That was sort of like the first D Day, but it's not given nearly as much credit. I think
1: it's because Italy was much 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 tougher. I mean, it was that you didn't get the the, the liberation it, 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 Italians because they had been on the Axis side. They they only become part of the Allies just around the time of Salerno. So the the liberating france and belgium is maybe a better story for newspapers and liberating italy although france and of course there was vichy france and france had officially collaborated there was the, the realization that after vichy you know that france becomes occupied by the germans they are they are victims of the germans whereas the italians were were officially an axis partner so you don't get that kind of same liberation story in Italy. and the climate mm. is shit in italy the mountains are crap out there the rivers and stuff so the journalists weren't going there the journalists the journalists were in england <laughs> waiting to go to Normandy because they knew it was going to be a much better story. That's why on D-Day you've got Ernie Parr and Ernest Hemingway and all these people there because they, they don't want to be in Italy. Yeah. That's not where the stories are going to be. They're not going to get their front pages by following that army of of, of weary soldiers who have been fighting since North Africa and a, and a grumpy and cynical and, and and the public don't seem to don't care about. I mean, it, it, there's a famous song in Britain composed by guys serving Italy called the D-Day Dodgers because Nancy Astor, of our first female members of Parliament said something of, while while other soldiers are are dodging it in Italy, the landings have been made in Normandy, and and, and people out in Italy were like, what the what the hell, you know? Yeah. we've been fighting there for years. Excuse me, Misses. Mm-hmm. So they kind of took they they kind of took this D Day dodgers and wrote it in a sort wrote it in a kind of an, an ironic song about here we are drinking the vino in Italy while the the guys in France are actually actually defeating Hitler. So they kind of turned it into a an anthem um, wow. and the fighting in Italy is just nasty and horrible and and much more complicated to explain as well and didn't have you know Salerno was planned in which is Operation Avalanche was planned in three weeks Anzio was planned on the back of a cigarette packet in a pub in about ten minutes almost. Overlord is a year and a half of planning, you know, so so no wonder it was going to work. They have they have put the effort in to make yeah. sure it's going to work. Um, and and the public want to hear about the easy to understand um, victories. And it's, it's, we're coming back to the reason people go to Normandy as tourists, not yeah. Italy.
0: Right?
1: Is you it's get that dangerous. instant gratification of kind of liberation and victory. You know, we're in Paris on August twenty fifth. Uh, yeah. So so you've got that real, and you've got all the you know the girls there, you know waving and going kissing the GIs on the tanks. Italy was a was a slog. If you count Sicily. It, it takes two years to take Italy.
0: It's fascinating to me that it was like marketing and PR. Yeah, fascinating, especially at that time where they were like, "I'm going down there. I want to go to this way. This is going to be better, better story. I'm going to get my front page headline." Fascinating.
1: I mean, that's, again, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit middle-aged and grumpy, but you've got to again, you've got to understand that. You know, I'm Brits getting there, war, so I understand where you're at. Yeah, <laughs> we've
0: been at war since 1939.
1: You've been at war since 1941. People can only t- t- cope with a certain number of bad, bad news. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and, and 42 had been more, well, including December 7th, 41. It had been unrelenting bad news for 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 months. Mm-hmm. You know, Bataan and Corregidor, and in Britain and, and okay, Dunkirk. We managed to be a PR coup turn. Our army being pushed out of France into a victory because we rescued them, but it is yeah. a defeat. It was glorious that we managed to bring the British army back to fight another day, but we went with our tails between our legs, and that was a, that was the bright spot in 1940. Yeah. We're losing the Battle of the Atlantic for another year and a half. We get we it takes us another two years to defeat to beat defeat the the, the, the Germans, Italians in in in, uh, in North Africa we've been pushed out of Burma the brits you know you 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 know you you can't get anything going in the pacific for 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 months yeah so so by 44 people want good news and italy's not where the good there is good news coming in the sense that we are liberating villages but it's bit by bit by bit bit. By bit. and the further we get up towards the top of italy the worse the, the mountains get the the more defense. Mm-hmm. the 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 gothic line was was horrendous for the for the allies to beat their way through so you know, you, if you're if you're reporting from Italy, all well, it, it's mud, um, shelling, friendly fire casualties, people having breakdowns. I mean, it, it, the winter of '44, it, 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 the epidemic of of trench foot in Italy and desertions. Let's not talk. Let's not avoid the fact that that winter, your guys are deserting in droves. My guys are desert. Everyone's had enough. Everyone's just fed up with it. Um, Normandy is 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 the is the story that the press are yeah. press are wanting. Um, we have a
0: 102-year-old in our network, Guy Prestia, who fought all the way up the boot. And we get great stories from him all the way, you know, to Dachau. Um, I- I- incredible stories that he he gives us. Uh, I, I have two more questions for you. Um, one being, you, you've you talked a bit about sort of how we viewed the greatest generation here in the States. And, like, yep. what are, like, put them on a pedestal and, and just what these guys were capable of accomplishing. What is the... It, is it a similar view in, in Britain of the of that generation? Is it called the Greatest Generation?
1: We don't. We don't. We we kind of borrow from that, but yeah. It, and this is where i i've got I've got quite mixed opinions about it because, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, a lot of that generation deserve every single credit we can pay them, and thank that that debt we owe them. Mm-hmm. But I, I I have a big problem with blanket statements of you know they were all heroes you see on facebook groups and things like that and you go again you go i'm a historian I, i'm here to explain what actually was going on and and you know what about the murderers what about the rapists what about the guys that were deserting what about the guys that let their friends down in combat now it wasn't very much and i'm not in any way saying that the great the great majority of allied soldiers were brilliant and they they, they fought through incredible adversity but i labeling that generation as being the i don't like the the, the other thing i have with the greatest Generation—is it implies we've peaked as a, as a species yeah and the world war ii veterans i knew the last thing they would want to be thought of is okay that's it well we all let's tell all the people all the, all the newborns i'll you know, give up you've got nothing to aspire to because you had the greatest generation it was 80 years ago there's nothing you could i think the greatest generation should be a generation we haven't got to yet where we don't have to go to war in our millions and and have to react to a Holocaust of 11 million people, it wouldn't it be better for the greatest generation to actually spend their time creating art and getting people together and teaching languages and, and bringing education about to people and teaching us to love each other. It's Good a point. weird way that we've celebrated the generation that had to dig us out of a hole for our own human hubris and pride and arrogance and and mm-hmm. and, and domination. So, you know, I, 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 and it's in Britain. I, don't, I mean, it's, I think it's very different than the U.S. But in Britain, veterans' associations are struggling. Ser, younger serving people who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. are feeling that the the British Legion, which is one of the big charities that they organise the poppy uh, commemorations, is that they're not worthy of joining the British Legion because they're not they're not the World War Two guys. And you go well? No, that's it's for you as well. Anybody who serves their country in, in any conflict, whether it's a conflict that the public were behind or not behind, whether it's one that we changed our pins of twenty years down the line, doesn't make a, a jot of difference. You know, one of my best mates in England, who was blown up by an IED in in, in Afghanistan, you know, he comes back after seven, eight months in hospital. And there's dog shit been put through his letterbox of his flat. Uh, someone protesting about why the British are in, in Afghanistan. Now, I'm, I'm the first to defend anybody's right to protest against their government. If you feel our government are doing something wrong, fine, go and protest. But do not, do not take it out on a serving soldier who's just following his, his dream to be in a tank regiment and go and do his bit overseas. So... In in your, uh, yeah. I don't want to speak for your country, but the, because you had the Vietnam experience, you've come out the other side of that. Yeah. In a much healthier world, where you understand that that servicemen and women don't decide the wars they serve in. and I think you're you're doing well. What just this very podcast that we're doing now is very much part of that general trend of accepting and thanking people, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, the greatest generation thing. I I I really like I like the sincerity. Of what it me? What people think it means, but it's a blanket statement. I don't like blanket statements. Good
0: point. Uh, I lied because I thought of another question. Uh, over the course, if if we had nowadays someone like you in every spot around the world where a great battle, you know, Alexander the Great, somebody there to to speak to that history, speak to that battle. Is there any other battle in history that you're like? I'd want to go there and live there and tell people about that history.
1: Um, whatever I've just been reading about or talking about on my YouTube channel. So, so right now I a week ago I finished a week about the Philippines. Um, mm-hmm. so right now uh, the idea of going to 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 there and and I've never been to that part of the world at all. And um, is it, really exciting. And and I am going to Budapest tomorrow. And that you know that and that's a, a million people involved in that battle there 40,000 civilians died in Budapest 650 armored uh, tanks knocked out in that one city and you know, it's like the, the, the world doesn't know about this the that's that's and that's happening exactly the same time as the Battle of the Bulge that's and that's because the public can only cope with one major event at the time so the world's attention was on the Battle of the Bulge not the Soviets smashing their way against against Budapest so I whatever I've just been reading about is is mm-hmm. is really where I'd like to be, and I, I, I'd like generally what I'd like is the world people to spread out and 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 use Gettysburg as a launch pad for other history launch. Use the same for D-Day and Normandy. Understand that yes, that these were important battles, but there's this other contextual understanding. You know, nothing happens in a vacuum, and that what yeah. was happening in Normandy was affecting what was happening in Eastern Front, and 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 what was happening in yugoslavia is causing the germans to pull troops there that could have been used in normandy to go back to your earlier question what's happening here there and everywhere and you know, there's a half a million german troops in norway that have been kept there because of the fear that the allies might land in in, in norway so you have to bring that into the story there and and understand that understanding this history it's a complex envi- environment where multi theaters multi- and and even the millions of Americans like my granddad who never left the UK, who never left the US in World War Two,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and what and why why they're not treated with the same debt of thanks as a guy who's fight fly, fly, flying up as a fighter pilot or running up the beach Omaha. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in the Philippines, in, in Luzon, when the Allies land there within the first day of the landing, right. They have got 24,000 gallons of blood and the refrigeration units are to keep them fresh. On the first day of the invasion, just for a second, for your viewers, just comprehend Mm -hmm. how much effort has gone in. This blood has all come from the US and it's been got to the Philippines. Where's the blood come from? Who's... and thousands of people involved i mean in in Guam and, and um Tinian there's like four hundred and fifty thousand American personnel there basically just keeping the few dozen b-29s flying later in yeah. the war that are bringing the war to japan but like on an aircraft carrier today where only a tiny percentage are actually involved in getting an aircraft and flying off an aircraft but there's this incredible support network behind there's it' a huge city yeah sit and the same in the u.s so so there are Tens of thousands of people in the U.S., part of the services, and not just services—the home front—who are enabling your country to get twenty-four thousand gallons of, uh, sorry, pints of blood to, to lose on on the first day of the invasion. And when I hear facts like that, I get all excited because it's just that gives me that. What this was in nineteen forty-five, we could achieve that. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I go back to how terrible we are at doing anything organized in twenty twenty-three. You know, right? <laughs> That's. That generation was that that ability and it's not the generation it's the it's the it's the it's the passion of everybody to understand this has to be done.
0: you gave me three good segues there um one being specifically uh your your youtube channel you have fifty eight thousand subscriptions uh, uh six million views. I encourage anybody listening to this podcast to pop over um I feel like some you w- my question is is what do you want someone to walk away with and i and i put an addendum here simply for the fact that in the hour plus that i've been able to spend with you what i'm walking away with is a passion to learn more yeah and i and and that is what like just hearing you talk about it hearing hearing your your passion for it the details, the just the incredible amount of knowledge that you have, and the way that you're able to communicate it. Uh, it, it makes me want to dive more into your YouTube channel, makes me want to dive more into like, you know, I learned, understood a bit about D Day. I didn't know about the horses. Oh, interesting. I want to dive, I want to learn more about that. What do you hope someone takes away from your YouTube channel? How best can people come to support you?
1: Well, um, thank you very much for giving me that, the the opportunity to talk about it. So my channel, we I'm the host. I bring historians on, and we we discuss a subject for a week or so. So so we've just done Philippines week. And I've got a submarine week coming up in late November, and Tommy's week. We're looking at the actions of the British Army, um, and historians and, and I we we talk about these subjects for an hour, an hour and a half, or something like that. But um, and they can help by watching, help by subscribing, and um becoming a patron, that kind of thing. But what I I want people to understand is that you don't have to trying to complete your knowledge is not the right way of going at it. We, we, we grew up both of us with, with things like you, you collect the, all the the different things on the back of a cereal packet, or you finish the album of baseball cards and, and you get to a point where you've got your set. And then we we have this desire to kind of finish that. Now, you know, you've, I, I've, you finished the season of this, of the TV show. You love, you have kind of done that. My learning of world war two is just, it's like a, a never-ending journey and I will mm. never get even a, 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 what you know one yard down this million mile long tunnel of understanding but don't be afraid of that don't be rather than thinking oh my god I'll never understand how Budapest connects with the Eastern Front and Yugoslavia don't don't worry about it. just just Dive in and understand that World War Two is way is a lot more than D-Day and Anzio and these the ones we know about, and just embrace the fact that the whole world was was trying to do this. And I've had guests from thirty four different countries on my channel, so mm-hmm. you know I, I have people from Romania and Hungary and and the Philippines and Japan and China and Taiwan and Thailand and 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 to get those perspectives, China of, of what was happening around the world. But just if, if you're interested in in the subject of World War Two don't be put off by the fact there's a hell of a lot of stuff you don't know, because even the people, I had lunch with John McManus, who's written incredible books about World War II, a trilogy about the Pacific. And we're saying how little we know about so much of it. You go, mm-hmm. you go yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah. And, and, and we were two of us. We couldn't even at lunch de- define what the Battle of Falle The Falaise pocket is in Normandy's. Like, when does it what when does it geographically? Is that part of the battle or is that something else? But we mm. love having the fact that we can't. You can't determine these things. We we love the fact that there is no definitive answer. Why, why that the Market Garden with one, you know, the crossing the, the bridges and the bridge too far? Why it didn't work? There is there's theories and people have put suggestions across. And and you know, I've got a friend who's a who's a ripperologist, meaning he studies and writes about Jack the Ripper in hmm. Victorian London. And I said to him once, Neil, I said, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as a ripperologist? He said, finding out who Jack the Ripper is because then it ends the industry it ends the discussions yeah and and that's that's how i feel about world war ii the, the people when i when i have someone say oh, yeah, i know all about world war ii and i think no you don't because i don't and i this is my life you know <laughs> i know a tiny 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 slither of it and then as soon as you you get a new little subject in you just open another door and there's another set of doors there each of which leads to and you go oh just last night, the show I did about this this Canadian um, spy who was in, in, in Germany in 1919, 1920, who was predicting that, that the Nazis were going to happen before the Nazis had even formed themselves. He's saying this is going to end in genocide. This is going to end in extermination of billions. And he's saying this. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm what, listening to this expert. And it's all new to me, but I'm not I'm not put off by it because I don't didn't know it. I'm excited by the fact I didn't know it. I'm excited by the fact there's so much more stuff to understand. Because ultimately, if you understand the past, you, you're better armed theoretically to understand the present and the future.
0: Words to live by. Um Paul, I want to thank you for your time. I, I want to say to our audience of the scuttlebutt, please check out uh Paul's YouTube channel uh which is uh ww2 the number 2 tv ww2tv um support it any way you can uh, and as for the scuttlebutt, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell, so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at org, with any thoughts, comments, or questions, and look down into the description here. I'll have links for everything for Paul, from his books uh, to his uh, website, and for the YouTube channel. Uh, Paul, again, thank you so much. Uh, I am certainly energized to go learn more.
1: Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. As you can tell, I do. I, I like talking about this stuff, and and there's so much to bring up. And it's I'm, I, I thank you for what you're doing. Because what you're doing is extraordinary. you well, bringing people together from different communities. And I felt a bit of a fraud coming on here because I haven't yeah. served and I haven't. I just I just talk about this, this war, but it's been a really delight talking to you.
0: Yeah, thank you. You as well. Um, and join us for another episode of the Scuttlebutt. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio health Uh, tobacco-free adagio health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now we've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them they are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke they're all about health so they want people to quit Uh, they have classes nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line 1-800 quit now they also educate people children especially about tobacco use from cigarettes cigars pipes chew snuff and other nicotine products like vaping and finally tobacco-free adagio health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two ScuttleBot episodes that featured Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information, or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health, for your support.